Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping, and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. It's been over a year since we've started this journey, Creeps. A year of weekly episodes, sometimes even two episodes a week. And my oh my, has it taught me some lessons. It's taught me just how differing our opinions can truly be based on our own life experiences. Where some see a victim, others see excuses for abhorrent and murderous behavior. Where some would allow empathy for individuals who themselves were failed by society, others see opportunistic criminals. It's truly been fascinating to learn alongside all of you wonderful creeps, and I expect our journey is far from over. But before we continue moving forward, I'd like to go back to the story that started this podcast. You see, Heather Thomas is still an important case to me, and one that truly changed my child and my teen years beyond that, and as such I want to do it justice. To some of you, this is an entirely new case, while to others you've already heard it. But I want to do it justice, now that I know my way around a microphone, and with Matt Black along to edit it beautifully for all of us to enjoy as well. When I first started this podcast, it was never meant to be a true crime podcast at all, but instead an exploration of the stories that shape us. And as such, I wanted to tell you all about the one that really affected me when I was younger. But as it turns out, I was accidentally starting Tales by Cole, the true crime podcast. So with that in mind, I'd like to, without the semi-autobiographical tone, and in one episode this time, without speaking too quickly and without yelling, tell you all about the disappearance of Heather Thomas. It was October 1st, 2000. Police were called to a townhouse complex in the sleepy suburb of Cloverdale, a borderland of sorts between the farmlands of Langley and the troublesome city of Surrey. A little girl only 10 years old, had gone missing. Her name was Heather Thomas. Heather was the daughter of Patrick and Jody Thomas. The two were estranged and lived apart. Search and rescue was already involved when police arrived, and along with all the neighbors were working diligently to try and track down the missing girl. The Serious Crimes Unit of the Surrey Royal Canadian Mounted Police was called to interview Heather's father, Patrick. Of course, nothing had been found to indicate that he had anything to do with her sudden disappearance, but the first officer to the scene reported his odd behavior. The officers from the Serious Crimes Unit quickly noted what the previous police had meant by unusual behavior. Patrick seemed unnaturally calm for someone whose daughter had just gone missing. The officer asked to do a search of the house, and Patrick quietly agreed. And like their earlier search, they found nothing. His car had also been searched and had come up clean. Investigators asked Patrick to come to the police station for a formal interview and statement, and once again he calmly and quietly agreed, and at a quarter to one and roughly seven hours after Heather's disappearance, Patrick was interviewed. In brief, his story was this. Patrick had been working on some carpentry in his residence. The two kids, Heather and her eight-year-old brother, Chris, had asked around 4.30 to go out and play around the complex while they waited to go to their mother's. He said yes, 
but told them that they had to be back by 5.30 so that he could keep to the prescribed schedule. After 5, Chris came into the house, but without Heather. Pat told him to go get his sister so that they could get ready to leave. Chris went out, but couldn't find Heather and came back a few minutes later saying exactly that. Showing the usual parent frustration, Patrick packed up and went out into the complex. He began looking and talking to the various kids and parents as to whether or not they had seen Heather. It was learned after a short time from some of those parents that she was last seen riding a two-wheeled bike that she had borrowed from one of the other kids. A few minutes later, the borrowed bike was found but no sign of Heather. According to one witness, the bike tire was still spinning when they found it, near the front of the complex in a parking stall on its side. From the moment Heather's father was first noted for his odd behavior to his being dropped off after his formal interview and statement, it was clear that he had not a single moment to have transported the body anywhere. Patrick most likely was not the culprit, but still police feared that if they turned their attention away from him, that would be the end of Heather. Despite those misgivings, police began to look elsewhere. There are only a few motives for abducting a 10-year-old girl, and if Heather was taken by a stranger, then the chance she was still alive was slim to none already. Investigators knew that time was of the essence. Over the next three days of the search, over 10 search and rescue teams and police agencies began to get involved in search for Heather. They came from Vancouver, Washington State, Squamish, North Vancouver, Coquitlam, Burnaby, This included off-duty officers and firemen and with 1,200 volunteers from the community by day three and with an even larger number turned away. It was shaping up to be one of the largest searches in RCMP history. But as day three came and went, the newscasters started using the words find and hope less and less. They rehashed the same details over and over with nothing new to go on. After three days of intense and extensive searching, the RCMP called it off. This wasn't because hope was lost. Instead, Royal Canadian Mounted Police wanted the neighborhood scrutiny to die down. If this was a crime of opportunity, then maybe the person who took Heather was hiding her in a place they weren't comfortable with, and were waiting for all the people to leave before they moved her. While police waited, they weren't idle. Every sex offender in the area was interviewed, and then when the search was broadened, every sex offender in Surrey was interviewed, which back in 2000 was well over 500 individuals. But one by one, each through disgusting detail or alibi was eliminated from the list of suspects. Some of those sexual offenders provided some enlightenment for the cops, saying that she could still be alive, kept alive as a personal play toy, and that any killing of her would have been a waste or a sign that something had gone wrong. By that point, Heather's disappearance was personal. She needed to be found. Cloverdale and the surrounding communities waited on pins and needles for their sense of security to be restored, but it seemed as the days passed that that might never happen. And then on day 22 of the search, Heather Thomas was found. A hiker found himself at the edge of Alouette Lake, staring at a milky lump floating in the water. At first, he didn't realize that the ghostly figure in the water was the body of Heather Thomas. But after a few moments, 
Straining his eyes, he saw the outline of the small body and called 911. As the day passed and the late afternoon rolled in, the body was brought to shore, wearing a striped sweater and naked from the waist down. Both the time of death and cause of death were more or less destroyed by the waters of Alouette Lake, and those two things are imperative to any investigation of homicide. After dividing into teams, a few hours later, officers located a large hockey bag submerged a few meters from where they had found the body. Police called Heather's father, Pat, to notify him that a body had been found. Body of a small girl, roughly 10, wearing a sweater similar to the one described to police as the one she had been wearing when she disappeared. According to police, Pat was calm once again on the phone, as he was told that his daughter's body had possibly been found. But 20 minutes after hanging up, police were sent to his home. His girlfriend had called police saying that Pat was going crazy from grief. Earlier that day when word had escaped that they had found the body, the media also heard that that body had been found and that it was possibly Heather Thomas. The result of their search of Alouette Lake had been productive. They had found a bracelet which was identified as belonging to Heather and police were now working under the assumption that Heather had been placed in the hockey bag which they had also found filled with rocks in the lake, and that in that hockey bag she had been thrown from the shore. But a broken zipper had let her body free of the bag. Not only had the search been productive, but police were also contacted about a dispatch regarding a suspicious vehicle. The dispatcher had started reviewing the dispatch tickets from those first few days of her disappearance after seeing Heather's body being found in Alouette Lake on the news, and she vaguely remembered a ticket that tickled the back of her brain. Four campground workers named Mike, Michelle, Kyle, and Stewart had called to report a suspicious vehicle. On October 2nd, an officer was dispatched, but the vehicle in question was gone on arrival. After following up, RCMP learned that on October 2nd at 6.50 in the morning, the employees drove into the park heading to their office to pick up their work vehicles. The four workers who had carpooled deep into the provincial park noticed a slow-moving vehicle. The driver wore a hoodie up over his head. They all grabbed their work vehicles and split up as the day started for them. One of the workers headed the way they had come in. The park employee saw a car in the distance, also facing south, and as they got closer, they saw that it was the same car they had followed into work. But now it was facing the opposite direction, and the hood was up as if it was broken down. The employee radioed to the others to report the second sighting of this car, and the other park employees decided that the second time was too suspicious to shake off and ignore. They called police to see if they would come and check on the vehicle. An officer did arrive some time after, and took out his pad of paper, wrote gone on arrival, and filed it away. A routine call with little to no effort put in. But now investigators on the case had yet another piece to the puzzle. A large car, blue or gray in color. And also, when police returned with a renewed interest in the event, upon their arrival and their questioning were met with a logbook one which had a note in the corner of the October 2nd entry, DRE-666. The license plate of the suspicious vehicle. Police quickly got to work running the plates. They found that it belonged to a 1971 Chevy Impala, a big boat of a car, a green Impala close to gray or blue. 
the vehicle was registered to one 23-year-old Shane Ertmode. Through the vehicle registration, they found that the records pointed to an address in Vernon, a four-and-a-half-hour drive from where Heather had gone missing. But when they ran Shane Ertmode's license, they found that he had renewed it on October 2nd, updating his address to Unit 8 of the same complex Heather Thomas was taken from. I think you can put two and two together, creeps. Police finally had a credible suspect, but still with very little evidence, they began to formulate how it was they were going to collect proof. Warrants had arrived and police began to mobilize, as Shane Ertmode was away from his apartment and vehicle one afternoon. What followed was a collaborative effort between departments. Some investigators headed to Vernon while others snuck into his home with a search warrant and began dusting for fingerprints, while another forensics team investigated his vehicle. Police entered his home, photographing everything as they went, dusting for fingerprints, looking for hair and fiber, and then putting everything back in place, making it appear as if they had never been there at all. While searching, they found no blood or hair in irregular places. Everything looked normal except for a desk drawer. Investigators came across normal bills and receipts, but set aside separate from the others in a deliberate fashion were receipts for a gas station and a movie ticket at 5.20pm on October 1st, 2000, the day Heather went missing. It looked to police as if Shane was setting up an alibi. On October 26th, the official findings of the autopsy came back. The autopsy of Heather found no sexual trauma. DNA swabs were taken, but they found nothing concrete. The water of Alouette Lake had either contaminated, degraded, or washed away anything of value. Then news from the team in Vernon came through. They had uncovered some details that were of interest to the investigation. Apparently, Shane had a girlfriend when he lived in Vernon, who was babysitting one evening. Shane stayed over to keep her company, but as his girlfriend fell asleep, Shane crept to the child's bed pulled her onto the floor and began spooning her in a sexual way. His girlfriend caught him and told the child's parents. That parent then reported this to police and it was assigned to an officer. But no one ever interviewed Shane, and it took police eight months to go forward with the victim's statement. Officers contacted the father, but by then he had decided it was not worth putting his child through the trauma of the court process. Lazy police work is what led to Shane never being charged, led to Shane living in close proximity to children, led to the disappearance of Heather. That was how investigators saw it, how police saw it. On investigation of the cameras outside the movie theater that Shane had purchased the tickets from on the day of Heather's disappearance, police clearly saw Shane buying the ticket. But then he left the theater, got back into his car and left. He never attended the screening. Investigators were slowly building their case piece by piece. But just as they were closing in on him, their hand was forced by the news. A reporter called on November 2nd, seeking comment on Shane Ertmode's impending arrest. Someone had leaked the suspect. Authorities unfortunately had no choice and the next day Shane was arrested. They knew at that point their case was flimsy. They knew he could possibly walk. Their only chance to solidify a confession was to question Shane and get him to confess. After a night in jail and a microwave dinner, 
Shane was ushered into questioning, and a mere three hours later he confessed. Creeps, if you want to know in painstaking detail what exactly happened on that day, you can go and listen to our first and second episode of Tales by Cole. But I think a brief overview will do for this retelling. Shane Ertmode confessed to luring Heather into his apartment to look at books with pictures of birds. He coaxed her to the floor and began spooning her, like he had spooned the child in Vernon. But unlike the time in Vernon, Heather began to get uneasy and fight back. And as she struggled, he began taking off her pants and underwear. He put his big hand over her tiny face and mouth to keep her quiet, and in turn suffocated her. Heather was dead before her father even knew she was missing. Later that day, her body was dumped in Alouette Lake. After all that build-up, after the frenzy which had surrounded the case, everything ended not with some grand finale, but with a cowardly whimper. On August 29, 2002, after pleading not guilty, Shane Ertmode was found guilty by a jury of his peers to the charge of first-degree murder. Shane defiantly told the judge at the sentencing when asked if he had anything to say. All that happened today was a fundamental miscarriage of justice, he said. The judge presiding over the trial replied, I happen to agree with the jury. You have been found guilty of the most horrific crime in law. You murdered a 10-year-old simply to satisfy your sexual desires. Then the judge confirmed and levied the heaviest sentence possible in the criminal courts of Canada. An automatic sentence of life without a chance of parole for 25 years. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. (laughs) 